If you're a regular listener of Timeless Leadership, you know I usually open the show with some sort of monologue, something that is reflective of what it is we're going to talk about in a given episode. Well, in the spirit of today's episode, which is titled Lead from the Heart, I thought I'd have more of a frank, heart-to-heart conversation with you. Kind of pull the mask down, as it were. You know, usually I'm reading from scripted remarks or prepared remarks, and I thought this time I would just kind of give it a go without notes. Kind of a tightrope without a net. And the reason I wanted to do this is twofold. One, there's been a bit of a gap between the previous episode, The Everyday Patriot with Tom Morris, and this episode, Lead from the Heart with Mark C. Crowley. And the reason is, well, it's summertime, so there, there have been distractions, and, well, we've had the bout of COVID at our house, we've dealt with that, and quite frankly, I've kind of been in a bit of a brain fog, difficult to get motivated, and, um, and just struggling a little bit here amid the waning days of summer. But I wanted to just be frank with you and let you know what was going on. As much as podcasts are intimate and a way to get to know each other, it's sometimes one-sided. I mean, you hear me, but I don't hear you. So I hope in some way that this is helping you to relate to me. Maybe you've gone through something similar at some point in your life at some point this summer. Who knows? But it's an important topic because... The idea of leading from the heart really gets to the core of so many of the things that I think are important in leadership today, things that I write about in the newsletter, things like respect and attentiveness and gratitude and kindness and enthusiasm and calmness, more of the soft skills that, well, until recently have really gotten short shrift. We talked with Tom Peters about this in his episode about humanity and excellence. And I think it's something we're going to be hearing more about, certainly as we try to figure out hybrid work environments, as people struggle with different things personally. This is exactly the kind of thing we get into with this conversation with Mark Crowley. And I wanted to just leave you with this one quote And I think we may mention it in the interview as well, but it's worth repeating. Arthur Schopenhauer wrote, Compassion is the basis of morality. Think about that for a moment. If only we showed more compassion to those around us, knowing that everybody's got some struggle that they deal with on a regular basis. We don't know what those struggles are. We can't always see them. But if we approach someone with compassion, with the willingness to want to understand what it is that they're going through that makes them act out in a certain way, think about the response we might get back. And that's how leading from the heart can actually lead us to better results.
Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm your host, Scott Monty. Feel free to listen to and follow this podcast wherever you get your listening material. We're available across all of them, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, even YouTube. Check it out and listen to us in the most convenient place for you. We'll also be picking back up on story time. That appears in the off weeks because we only do this show every other week. And in story time, you'll hear me talking about well, familiar names or familiar events, but from a bit of a different perspective. It's basically an exercise in storytelling, which is an essential skill for every leader. And don't forget, you can find all of this material and more on the Timeless and Timely site at TimelessTimely.com. It is a Substack publication. You can get the weekly newsletter as well as some fun stuff we do on alternate Saturdays as well. And for our paying subscribers, we're going to be doing our monthly video call where you can dial in and engage with other leaders at all stages of their careers and ask me questions about well, just general leadership things, strategy, management, you name it. Uh, it is available to you as a paying subscriber to Timeless and Timely. So make sure you check that out. Thanks. Mark C. Crowley is a recognized visionary in workplace management, engagement, and culture. He spent 25 years as an executive leader in the financial services industry before leaving to write the original version of Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. Today, He's a global speaker and consultant to organizations seeking to transform their cultures, elevate their employee engagement, and coach their managers in new ways of leading and managing. When his book was published over a decade ago, many business leaders were slow to embrace it and misinterpreted its title as being synonymous with soft, weak, and ineffective management. Today, his pioneering philosophy on heart-led leadership has launched a global movement, and Forbes magazine has called his ideas visionary and the blueprint for the future of workplace leadership. Mark is a regular contributor to Fast Company magazine, and his work has been published by USA Today, The Huffington Post, The Seattle Times, Forbes, Thrive Global, Reuters, 
the Great Place to Work Institute, and Gallup. Since 2018, Mark has been hosting the Lead from the Heart podcast, where he has discussions with world-class leaders whose work, in some meaningful way, reinforces the leadership philosophy and practices in his book. Mark's a member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches community and a graduate of the University of California, San Diego, and the Pacific Coast Banking School at the University of Washington. He lives in La Jolla, California, with his wife, Carol, and cat, Vinny. Mark C. Crowley, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Wow, you sound like a professional disc jockey there, Scott, so thank you. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, now, so my first question is, should I call you Mark C. for the entire yeah. presentation? <laughs> you know, well, the funny the funny thing was when, when my the original version of my book came out, it was just going to be Mark Crowley. That's who I am. And then I found out that there's literally some other Mark Crowley out there doing some leadership consulting out near you, like in Ohio. And so I had to add the C, which is my middle initial. And I've actually come to like it. So, but no, Mark only. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, we'll we'll see if we can uh, surpass that interloper uh, here. So, um, this is interesting. You mentioned the uh, the first edition of your book. The book was originally published in 2011, if I'm not mistaken, and now you've come out with this second edition in 2022. Why now? Wow, um, it's a really great question because um, the truth is, when I wrote it originally, I thought that the world was ready for it. And I th the truth is, Scott, that the word heart really trips people up. Like, you know, it's like raises a major eyebrow with people and they go, is he a nut? Is he a spiritualist? Does he understand business? Because we don't bring heart into business. And what, you know, I had to make this decision about including the word heart in there. And it really boiled down to the fact that there's just science that confirmed my whole experience in managing people that the heart actually plays a role in influencing human behavior. Like it's more than a pump. And that's sort of a mind blowing idea. And all people could do from a business standpoint was see the word and just get suspicious that, you know, this guy probably is on the wrong side of where we need to be. And so once I fully understood that, the good news is that education embraced it. The book got taught and has been taught in nine universities in America. And so that was encouraging, but I really wanted to win over business. So I started writing articles for Fast Company and ultimately started my own podcast, all with the intention of having people listen or read and go, huh, interesting. And he's not enough. That was my goal. And so I also knew that my motivation to do all that was ultimately going to be rewarded, that the world would finally realize, OK, he's actually right. What I didn't anticipate, to answer your question, is A, how long it would take, i.e. 11 years, and B, what it would take. And what it took was a global pandemic to change our perspective on heart altogether. So Hart suddenly, I mean, there's a book that just came out in the New York Times or a Wall Street best bestseller list that starts off with lead from the heart. And I'm like, that was like kick me. That was like, you know, this is you know, right. I mean, that was like the worst thing you could do. And now people are embracing this language. And so I brought it back out to answer the question. 
how do we lead now in a post-pandemic environment? And I had the formula 11 years ago, but what I have now all this time later is infinitely more data. And you've read the book which we were talking about. So you know that there's just a preponderance of data that validates the original thesis. So at a time where I think leaders and managers all around the world are saying, how do we manage people in light of a great resignation, people's unhappiness at work, what do we have to do to pivot? And so I think the world is, you know, as as if the universe punished me for having to make me wait 11 years, the world has come back and said, okay, we're going to give you, you know, a major event that's going to validate what you're doing. And this might be a good time for you to republish your book and, and reintroduce it. Yeah. And, uh, Hey, look, this is, this podcast is timeless leadership. We are, uh, if anything else, all about ideas whose time has come. Um, but the things you talk about are really universal. You know, I was struck by some of the leadership quotations you have in your book that harken back to great figures from uh, the past, from, you know, ancient philosophers and whatnot, that these are universal human truths that we're talking about. Why is it so hard for us to acknowledge human nature in this hustle bustle, you know, fast paced world? There's a lot of reasons for it. One is, is because we never believe we needed to. So, you know, the, the, the expression, leave your troubles at the door was created in the workplace. <laughs> you know, it was basically like, I'm your manager. I'm going to pay you, Scott, to do a good job. If you do a good job, I might give you a little bit more. If you do a bad job, I've got somebody waiting outside to take your job. So that's our transaction. So do I care about you and how, what, you know, whether you're growing in this environment or you feel appreciated or, you know, any of the things that I talk about in the book is anything fulfillment related, purpose and meaning and any of that kind of stuff. It's like, no, I don't, that's not my job. So you start there and you realize that we've never had a need for this because people needed a job. They needed to meet their basic needs. So they went to work for money and that was the transaction. The other side of this is that you you astutely said that we've been using this language around the heart forever, like for centuries and millennia. So when you hear the expression, if you remember in school, um, you know, I went to Catholic schools and I remember my nuns saying, you better learn this by heart. And, you know, they, they didn't say learn it by brain or learn it by mind. And it's just a, you know, follow your heart, trust your heart, all those kinds of expressions. It's like, well, if we're so brain oriented, why is it that we continue to use that language? And I think there was some part in point in time where the things that we believed without proof, science came and said, we're not going to believe anything without proof. So when you say, learn it by heart, until you can demonstrate to me that there's any reason to believe that, then we're going to call that patently false. And so when they first opened up a heart and all they could see was the bump and a bump and a bump, they decreed that the heart is really just a pump and magnificent one at that, but all of our cognitive ability is up here. So we've been taught that all of our intelligence is here and ignore that it's actually truthfully it's distributed through our entire bodies, but it really rely it really lives in our heart as well. And so once you understand that we have two forms of intelligence, then you'll start to use them both. And it's not that I'm saying put the mind away and just use heart. 
I'm saying that the problems that we have in our workplaces have been caused because there is no heart. But of course you continue to use your mind. You use them both. So it's those two reasons that I think that, you know, historically we've never believed that we needed to really care about people in the workplace. That was beyond the pale. And then we had science to say, I'd question anything you hear unless you have real clear evidence of that. And of course now science is proving with greater technology that the heart has actually got much more involvement than we thought. Yeah, and what really struck me as I was uh, going through your book is you get to the a new chapter that you added to this edition, chapter nine, where you talk about a very personal experience, um, something that happened to you from a medical standpoint and how the staff interacted with you and how that potentially changed the outcome of your stay at the hospital and you followed it up with scientific research talk a little bit about that for us so i had a blood clot that almost killed me and um like nothing in my biology nothing in my history it just happened and so uh, i won't go into the details of how badly i behaved in that moment because my wife wanted to call an ambulance and um i, I resisted you know who knows why but nevertheless when i got to the hospital i was in much more serious condition than i imagined i was and the doctors discovered that um, that my lung had collapsed because i had fallen the day before based on the blood clot and cracked the rib and then the next day apparently the rib punctured my lung and put enormous pressure on my heart and so when they were doing their diagnostics, they realized, oh, my God, he's got a blood clot. And so the doctors were basically saying there were there were at least nine different doctors during this time that I was in the hospital. And all of them had written down patient not expected to live. So when I went in, they, the first thing they did was reinflate the lung and then they had to go in and insert a tube. I don't even know how they understand how they could possibly do this, but it created a filter that prevented the clot from going into my heart and killing me. So I survived it. So that's that's now done. But they basically telling me you're going to be here for a week and we're putting you in intensive care. And I don't know what it was, Scott. It was like, I don't know what they were doing to me for those hours that I was in surgery, but it was when they said you're in intensive care that I finally went, oh, like you only put people that are really sick in intensive care, right? So like, oh, I am that person. So now I'm much more aware and I'm much more concerned about things. And so they put me into the intensive care and then the nurses specifically, the doctors were great, but the nurses, there was just something about how they handled me and the thoughtfulness and the and literally the care and i had this feeling that i'm going to be okay because of them and of course i made it out and i was so moved by that experience and this be perhaps because of my what i do for a living this i'm basically watching lead from the heart in action so i reached out to the ceo of the hospital and said i'd like to come and thank you and I went and met with him and I basically said, Do you, I want you to know that your doctors and nurses, it wasn't the science so much. I mean, I know they did some amazing things, right? We clearly know that they put this tube down my heart and created a filter that they later were able to take out. So no argument that the science was fantastic, right? And that a, a novice couldn't have saved my life. Taking that aside, 
I really truly believe that there was something extraordinary about how people made me feel during that week, that they had been taught to care about me in ways that felt something supreme. And so when I explained this to him, he quickly dismisses me and goes, well, you know, it's the science, right? You know that you're talking about doctors and nurses here and they've got, you know, degrees and, you know, long years of education and he was having none of it. And I just found that really, truly fascinating. And so, um, so I left there convinced that the guy once again thought, I'm dealing with a loon, somebody who doesn't really understand the world. And I was very used to that already. And then um, I met this gentleman, these two doctors, um, and I forget what the um, Mazzinelli and Treziak, but basically what they had done was to research whether or not doctors who truly cared about their patients made any difference in the outcomes of their patients' um, livelihood, whether or not they survived, whether or not they healed. And so what was really interesting was that Dr. Tresiak is a medical nerd. And he was on my podcast after I read the book. And he basically said, like, the last thing I want to do is go and look for evidence that caring about a patient is going to make any difference whatsoever. It's all about the science. We all know that, right? But his CEO was getting pushback because the patient scores were bad. The profitability was bad. A third of the doctors were saying that they were burnt out. So he, as the CEO, had motivation to just say, look, go in there and look and see. We have a consultant saying that if you care more about your people, your patients, you will see all of those problems go away. And he didn't believe it. He is a trained attorney and an MBA. He also has a medical degree, but he, he was like, no, this isn't it. But they basically went and did the work. And what Treziak told me was, if you look at any one research paper, Scott, the, you go, well, that's interesting. That says that when doctors care about their patients, people do better in their, in their medical care. He goes, but we don't take that very seriously because it's just one report. He goes, but I went and looked and I found thousands of research articles and medical studies. When you put them all to get together, it became irrefutable. So what he told me was, he goes, we now know that the doctors, their burnout went away because they're spending more time with their patients and getting to know them more. They're making a difference in their lives. They feel better. It feels more enriching and rewarding. They also found out that the patient scores went up when doctors spent more time with them. And so basically what he proved was that compassionate doctors improve and actually save lives. They were saving people that had AIDS that they weren't able to save before and they could pinpoint it to this. But I think the big takeaway from this was not only was I confirmed in my own experience once again, but what's interesting is he basically showed, Dr. Treziak showed that the amount of time that you have to spend with a patient, extra time, in order for them to feel that that doctor is truly compassionate and cares about me is like 40, 50 seconds. It's less than a minute. All you have to do is express, I'm concerned about you, I care about you, and I'm here to be with you through this journey. And people go, thank you. That, that's what I needed to hear. Now tell me what my bad news is. So fascinating experience, but it was interesting that the CEO you know, refuted my whole experience, but now science has once again confirmed that I was right.
Uh, that's incredible. And obviously, though, that kind of demonstration of kindness and compassion, and we'll get into this in a little bit, this has implications for uh, the workforce, you know, how we treat our employees. But I want to touch on something here, Mark, that goes back to kind of your origin story. This CEO kind of calling you a loon or making you feel as if you are an other um, you grew up in a very um, difficult experience and were made to feel um, that kind of otherness by your own father. You talk about it in the book um, and the, the potential resolution uh, as we get to the end of your book. Talk about that journey and how that actually positioned you to be more attuned to compassion and kindness and empathy and all these things that make up uh, leading from the heart. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question because, um, it, you know, it, when I was writing the book originally and, and I started to put the pieces together, Scott, I, I realized, wait a minute, this 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 happened for a reason. Like I, I this these experiences that I've had in my life that led me to leading people very, very differently in, in business took me until I was like 43 or 44 years old to realize it had any relationship at all to my upbringing. And it wasn't until somebody who was who had been working for me for about 20 years just blurted out one day. She goes, you realize you manage people very differently, don't you, compared to everybody around here? And that's how she expressed it to me. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she started to give me uh, an understanding of the behaviors that I exhibited in relationship to what everybody else was doing. And I started to make the understanding that, wait a minute, like, this is a relationship to how I grew up and how I grew up was my mom died when I was very young and my father basically took over responsibility for raising me. And he was a flawed human being, actually successful in as a professional, but truly flawed as a human being. And for whatever reason, I'm not so sure I'll ever fully understand it, but he made it his goal to destroy my sense of equilibrium, my sense of well-being. He really wanted to destroy my self-esteem. He told me I would never amount to anything. And, and he, he repeated that story, but he also did it by yelling and screaming. And so it was piercing my whole body. All my whole cells had this. And so he did a very good job. He, did a very, very good job of beating me down and sort of taking away my self-belief and, and sense that I was going to have a successful life. And then right after high school, he kicked me out of the house uh, without any notice whatsoever. No, here's your first and months last. Here, let me go drive around with you and we'll find some nice place for you to live. Please come home Sunday night for dinner. I want to be there for you. It was over, like all of that in an instant. And I had used the motivation of getting a degree as binary, Scott, in the sense that if I didn't get a degree, he would have been right. I would have been the the, the complete abject failure that he always told me that I would be. So it was a make it or break it kind of a situation, but now he's cut my legs off. I have no money, I have no income, I have no job, I have no place to live, and now I'm having to figure out how I'm gonna go to school. So I started going to school and I don't know why they, I actually literally called one of the professors and he's in his eighties now. And I just said, I don't know why you didn't kick me out. And I, but I want you to know how much I appreciate the fact that you saw the potential in me and let me grow up basically and figure it out. Cause he, 
didn't know what my situation was, but it was a very deep struggle. And as you can imagine, right, just trying to figure out how you can live and survive, but also then go to school and then also do well when you have a belief system that says you don't belong here, you don't deserve to be here, you're never going to do well here, and now you've got this handicap. So I did make it through, and I'm right around my graduation, I'm talking to friends, and they're all going off to law school and graduate schools, and I'm like thanking God that I passed anything, like, you know, that I'm getting out with a degree. That was the best that I thought I could get. My horizon was that. And I started looking around and thinking, well, how are these people going off to Harvard Business School? And how are these people going off to medical school? And I am just feeling lucky as hell that I was able to just get this. And I realized it was a depravity, a deprivation, rather, of thoughtful direction and care. Somebody who was, how did you do on your final? Great, congratulations. So appreciation, approval, um, empathy for, boy, I'm sure that's a tough class. Just somebody that really had my back. I didn't have any of that. And all of those people that were going off had that. They had a place to go on Thanksgiving. They had a place to go on Christmas. They had a place to go if they needed somebody to support them. And I had not had any of that. And so the pivot that I made when I started managing people and I, had no conscious awareness, awareness of this until I was in my 40s, as I mentioned, was I made the decision to give that to people. I, I had this fantasy of what would happen if I gave people my attention? What would happen if I coached them? What, if I, what would happen if I shared everything that I had learned with them to accelerate their growth? What would happen if I made them feel really safe so they didn't go home on some, you know, Friday night wondering whether their boss thought they were doing a good job and whether they were at risk of losing their job? Telling people outright how much they, I appreciated, love having them on my team, how proud I was of myself for picking them, all of these kinds of things. And People just scaled mountains for me. And that was really the, the key epiphany for me was that it didn't matter whether it was man or woman, didn't matter what their education was, didn't matter what job they were doing. I had enough progression in my career to manage people in staff positions and line positions and senior managers and junior managers and everything at, you know above and beyond. And what I found out was that we never outgrow needing that kind of support. And it's really that epiphany that motivated me to write the book in the first place. Because we think, well, by the time you get into the workplace, you're an adult, you shouldn't need anybody to care about you or ask how you're feeling or what's going on with your family or make you feel safe. It's like, those aren't my responsibilities. But when you give them to people, there's a, an instinct to reciprocate because of what it makes you feel. You feel so great. It's an indescribable spiritual feeling that I'm working for somebody that cares about me this much and I'll do anything to help you. That's what I experienced. Yeah. And, and I mean, we forget sometimes that when we show up to work, well, we bring the baggage of the things that are happening outside of work with us. Uh, you know, maybe we got in an accident on the way in. Maybe we have a spouse who's struggling with an illness. Maybe we have a child who is struggling in school. These things, you, you, you don't just shut these emotions off like a spigot when you get into the office and stop thinking about them. And it's really about acknowledging whole people at work, their whole selves, and not just a, an automaton that shows up to do a task. And I think what you're describing there acknowledges that people are people, people are humans. Well, you know, 
and people are messy. And so everything that you described is what I call messiness. And if you're a manager and you've got 25 people working for you and every one of them has their own messiness, it's very easy to go, I don't want any part of their messiness, right? And so we're going to have an agreement. This is a business transaction. You come in and do your work and I don't have to care about what's going on in your life. And we put up with that for a really long time to our detriment, to our suffering. Because I can't pick up the phone and call my my father who's, you know, living with me, who's ill and just say, Dad, are you doing OK? You know, I'll be home around six. I'll bring dinner. Quick conversation. But if you have a boss that's like, keep that out of the workplace kind of a thing or anything going on that's outside of the focus of a job. That's how we believe. We thought that that was the right thing to do. So business was always business. And then you come home and you deal with those kinds of things. And I'm not saying that you use your work time to solve your personal problems, but you can't divorce yourself with them. The problem is, is that historically managers got away with not connecting into people's messiness. It takes time, takes an investment of energy. And then, and then you tell something to me that I'm like, oh, geez, like, I got to help you through this. It's like, I don't have any, you know, you're going through a divorce. That's not my problem, you know? But what I've learned is you don't have to solve the fact that somebody's going through a divorce. Just, but if you said that has to be really difficult for you, and, and I'm really sorry that you're going through that. And to the extent that I can help you get through this, let me know. Generally, that's as much as it takes because you know what? I'm not going to come back to you and say, hey, Scott, you know, my my ex is asking for $4,000 a month. Do you think that that's worth it? You know, you think I should settle? No, I'm not going to get you as my boss involved in my divorce settlement kinds of, right? But the fact that you said to me, Mark, you know, I'm really sorry you're going through this. And if I can be there for you in any way, it's like you cared enough to say that to me and took the risk to get into the messiness. Now, if I said to you, oh, you think 4,000 or 5,000, then you, you sort of say, well, I, you know, of course I can't help you with that. Right. <laughs> but, um, but I, but I, I want you to know as a person, I'm there for you. It means the world to people, but we don't take the leap and say it because we fear getting into their messiness. And I'm saying you can't, and you sort of inferred it in your question in the beginning. I mean, it's like you can't ignore it, but if you honor it and acknowledge it, people aren't gonna bring their burdens to you. They're just gonna know that you care that they have burdens and that's what makes the difference. Yeah, and I think what that does with employees is it makes them dedicated to sticking around to putting in their best effort despite some of their their uh, travails because you've shown that kind of compassion to them that empathy um it makes them want to live up to your expectations uh, in some ways completely but it's, i'll tell you another part where managers don't anticipate where this is going to come back and reward them managers do stupid things we will make bad decisions We'll do something, we'll say something, we'll make a decision we didn't think through, something that harms the team, harms an individual within the team. And, you know, the, the next move they could make is to go to HR or to start complaining within the team, whatever, right? This is the way things work. 
you, you can't manage people or manage anything without making mistakes. But when you have demonstrated to people that you, they, you really do care about them, they give you the benefit of a doubt. They'll come to you personally and say, hey, you, you hurt me by what you did there. Or do you realize the decision that you made as opposed to going up to the chain to your boss and going, this guy's a jerk and look what he did. I know that sounds sort of like, you know, um, not real world, but it is real world. It, it, it gives people the sense of, wait a minute, I'm not going to overreact to this because 99% of the time this person is doing the right thing. And that's a very powerful thing in addition to all the things that you described, it does create more loyalty. It does create more engagement. People do do better work because how they feel about working for you. Yeah. You know, I recently counseled a client on almost that very thing where I said, look, assume good intent. Don't assume that some, that your manager, that uh, your, your colleagues are out to get you. Everyone's here to contribute in a positive way. And if you can assume good intent from your colleagues and your your boss, then that'll eliminate about 90% of the negative feelings that you have. The other thing that I've found is that when we have more openness, more transparency, particularly in our communication, when someone tells you why something is happening or brings you along on a decision journey, rather than just dumping something on you, you know, it's like when your flight gets delayed from the airline, if they don't tell you that, well, it's because the pilot's sick or there's a weather issue, you're convinced that they're out to screw you over and make you late. And, right. you know, it's it's all about them doing something harmful to you rather than understanding the bigger picture of what's going on. And I think clearer communication and openness and transparency goes a long way in preventing that. I totally agree with you. I, and I remember a boss of mine many, many years ago went away for like three or four days of leadership training. And I said, what's the number one thing that you'll always remember from this training? And he said, assume innocence. And so along the lines of what you're just talking about, I always thought that that was a very powerful thing. However, you may know it and I may know it, but in the heat of life, when people get upset, it becomes an accumulative situation, right? So if I'm upset with you because of something you did right now, everything else comes into play. How have you been treating me leading up to this moment? And if I'm looking at you and I'm saying, he doesn't care, he's a jerk, he doesn't care about my burnout, he's sending me emails on the weekends all the time, he asks me to jump on meetings, never says he's appreciative. Now, how am I thinking? I'm going, you know what? I'm not assuming innocence here. I'm going to his boss or I'm going to HR or I'm going to start telling everybody around here I'm tired of working for this guy, whatever that is. But it works the other way around too, which is your point, is that when people go, you know what? I'm not going to overreact to this. I'm just going to assume that Scott had a bad day because most days he's wonderful. And that is cumulative too. And in some ways, this circles back around to the afterword that you put in the book and how you reunited with your father and how forgiveness became an essential part of getting past that. And I think forgiveness kind of plays a role in the workplace, too. I mean, you can't hold grudges against your colleagues or your boss all the time. Buddy Hackett famously said, uh, don't hold a grudge while you're holding a grudge. The other guy's out dancing. 
And that really gets, gets to the heart of, of forgiveness and moving past some of these things. Can you talk a little bit about forgiveness in your own journey and how it actually applies to leading from the heart? I've never been on a podcast or anywhere that the host quoted Buddy Hackett. So, <laughs> but that's actually a profound insight about forgiveness. But I, I'm, there's so much that I want to say on this, but let me pinpoint a couple things. One is I didn't see my father for all intents and purposes for the next 15 years. And then my stepmother notified me that he was in the hospital, not doing well, implying that he was going to die. And I went to see him. And my fantasy for almost all those 15 years was not just a fantasy, but convinced it was going to come true that after 15 years of not having me in his life and by now I'm married and have a son and, you know, my life is successful, that I hadn't been in his life that he was going to say on his deathbed, I'm so sincerely sorry for the harm I caused you. And I'm proud of you for who you've become. And so I went into the hospital anticipating that that was the conversation we were going to have and none of it ever happened. So even after all of that, at 87 years old, a full life, he never, ever said it. And this is where the Buddy Hackett quote comes in, because what I have seen is that if you don't heal that within yourself, then you're not you're not dancing in life. You're you're holding a grudge and you're paying the price for it. And it holds you back. So what I will say is that I after he died and not getting what I wanted, now imagine that. You're just so hoping you're gonna get that. I'm really, really sorry. Anybody else you think would have done that, and he didn't do it. So he dies, and I never got that fulfillment. So like people go, well, you think your dad loved you? I go, well, he never said it. So I, I, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. There were certain things that he did that were really good that were, you know, that you could attribute to love. But when you have 15 years away from your son that you kicked out of the house and he's doing okay, it'd be easy just to say, I'm really proud of you. You know, I'm really proud of something. So by not getting that, that leaves a legacy of pain. Like, you're, I will always know my father never gave me that. Whose problem is that? His problem or my problem? Well, it's my problem. I've got to deal with that. And so what I've seen happen is that people are harmed, and they let that harm, as Wayne Dyer said, you let the weight drive the boat. And unless you confront it and unless you heal it, the wake will drive your boat for the rest and it will influence your motivations and how you interact with people and how you manage people. My mantra is know thyself and to know thyself means to know your strengths and limitations and what motivates you. And I found out that I had been motivated by a lot of things, you know, needing to prove myself all the time because I, you know, needed to validate that I wasn't the person my father was. That's a really bad motivation. I was sarcastic with people because I learned that from my father. And so I had to obliterate that from my behavior. So I spent a lot of time working on healing that. And when I think of my father now, I just think of all the really great things of my childhood. I don't think about being kicked out and the harm that he did and not saying he was sorry. 
Um, but I think it's a really important part for leaders to realize that you can take responsibility for it. You can either hold a grudge or you can be dancing. And dancing is a much better way of living your life. Well, I want to move on now to covering the four uh, principles of uh, leading from the heart and, and just cover them briefly because uh, I want people to actually get the book and actually understand them more in depth. But can you can you go through that hierarchy of four principles that you've outlined? Well, you know, the the first one really is, is that we I think we underestimate the importance of the selection process and who we bring on to our team. And so, you know, in, in the interest of time, I, I, I think it, people think I need to fill this position and this person looks good on paper and they've got a degree or they've got some experience and I'm going to give them the job because they, they did a decent job in the interview. And not really thinking about whether they're going to have their heart in that work. Is this what they really want to do or do they just need a job? And having that discipline of understanding that somebody really wants to do the work you do the way you do it, uh, it makes an enormous difference when it comes to executing whatever it is that you're doing. And so I've always involved, I've learned to involve people who are already really doing a great job on my team, involving them in the hiring decisions, actually deferring to them. So I'll interview candidates and then I'll say, look, I can live with any of these people. So you tell me which one you want to hire and what they're looking for are two things. One is the skill set because I'm not doing all their jobs. So they can identify, does this person have the skills that they need in order to do what we do? And then do I like them? Like, are they going to be a good fit here? Are they going to fit within our culture and do live our values the way we do? So when you hire well, people just come into work already motivated as opposed to coming in and finding out that you do things the way they don't want to do them or that they don't like doing or they don't want to be a collaborative person they like being a you know, lone wolf but if your values are, are collaboration and you hire a lone wolf well the lone wolf tends to eat up all the collaborators so you you your team <laughs> it's been my experience you know one person can take a team down so the first one is really to to make sure with great deliberation that you're not filling jobs for the sake of filling them, that you're filling them with people that you think are going to have their heart in that work, the heart in that team, and have an intention of being around for a while, that it's not a transactional relationship. I don't want anybody that is looking to be in the job for six months so that they can go off to another one, find somewhere else to go. I want a team of people that wants to work together for a while, right? So the next one is, and, and I remember when I wrote this the first time, just being so apprehensive about it. Like, what, forget the, I'm using the word heart. I really had this belief that people are gonna go, oh, geez, like, is he for real? But what I learned is you need to build a personal relationship with people. And by building a personal relationship with people doesn't mean you have them over for Sunday dinner or you go get drunk with them on Saturday night. Right. I say these things because that's what people they leap to these conclusions and then they call bullshit, you know. And so if you have just a reasonable understanding of, of, you know, like what people need, it's like I'm not talking about doing something crazy with people. I'm saying build a relationship around what people are interested in getting from their job. So 
what do you want to learn? What's your ambition? Where do you want to be? And some people don't want to be anywhere beyond where they are, right? That's okay. But how can I help you grow in that role? How can I help you feel good in that role? What are some of the things that are going on in your life that you're willing to share with me that will help me understand the challenges that you have? So, you know, I've had people that had little babies and they said, can I come in a half an hour earlier? And I said, no way. You know, tell your baby you're leaving. You got to be at work. No, of course I didn't. It was it was so easy. right? I mean, but we think, nope, we're supposed to be there at eight o'clock. And I'm like, well, no. What if you had the flexibility to say, you know, no, I want you to be able to do that as long as it doesn't interfere with, you know, if there's a meeting at eight o'clock. You have to figure out a way to be there. But if you can, you know, if you can do your job without that, I don't have any problem with that. So you're you're basically saying, how can I support you, Scott? Not how can I help you, Scott, the way I'm going to help everybody else, but how can I help you, Scott? And when you understand what people are wanting and understanding what they're needing, and you can help develop a plan and do things personally for them, you're reading an article and you go, oh, Scott and I were just talking about that. So you send them the article and then they go, Scott realizes, wait a minute, Mark thinks about me outside of work. Like on a weekend, he read that and he thought of me. That's a really wonderful thing. So that reinforces, again, where do we feel that? Here, in the heart. And then the next one is really about, and and I wrote this article several years ago now, five or six years ago, about how to manage millennials. And I think it's been read like 800,000 times on LinkedIn. And one of the recommendations that I made was that we actually change the title from manager to coach. And the reason is because, and so people go, well, you know, managers have a lot more to do than coach and i go yeah but coaches have a lot more to do than coach too so if you think about like a coach of a major league baseball team or something they're not just coaching on the field they're thinking about who the players are and what the minor leagues are doing and how we're developing talent and what's our budget and how how many you know what can we do in terms of developing our training and all those kinds of things that come into it that are very management oriented the difference is that inherent in the title manager isn't the word coach. And that's what we need. Um, that's what we need. So I, we were talking offline. I have a, a very dear friend of mine who's the CEO of an organization, and he begged me to coach a couple of his, of his senior leaders. And he had this right before our call, this individual had just gotten off the phone with his boss and was really upset about the interaction. And I, it was like, I've been there so many times, but as I said, let me just tell you how to handle this. And it was like, and he goes, this is so helpful. And I realized like every one of us needs that. Every person needs a coach. So if you orient yourself to, I'm going to coach you in a way that's going to help you grow and become more effective, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? So I've made a huge investment in people, teaching them everything that I know. I read a book, which I have done. I read a book a week every every week for the last 25 years. But what I also do, which which some people have called neurotic, but I've called invaluable, is I literally type up notes from every nonfiction book that I read. And if we were on video, I'd show you. I've got piles that are you know way high. And I take them on planes and read them and they reinforce the information. So it's been invaluable for me. But what I used to do was to share those with the people who work for me. 
and just said, hey, I read this over the weekend and typed up the notes and thought you'd be interested in it. And they're like, wait a minute. I don't have to spend all weekend long reading this and you're giving me the notes, but I'm giving them the information. And I'm, and, but I'm benefiting it because they're getting information that's enhancing them and making them more effective. So it's a win-win. I'm not trying to be you know, a saint here. I'm trying to help people grow so that they can become more effective. And by the way, every team I ever managed was like a supreme winner, like they were the best. And I used to take that for granted until somebody pointed it out to me. I was like, you realize everything you've ever managed is like, oh, like, I guess you're right. I just thought I was doing what everybody else was doing. And the fourth one, which is, I think, is truly, truly the most important of them all. And people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard this a million times. But we, we may intellectually understand that appreciating people is really important, but emotionally, um, and from a practical standpoint, in terms of what we actually do with it, we treat giving people recognition, Scott, like every time I say, hey, Scott, congratulations, great job. Scott, thank you so much for getting to this, getting this report to me on time. Hey, Scott, thanks for being on time for the meeting. We think, oh, I got to reach into my pocket. It's like I'm pulling out a 20 every time I give you something. Right? It's a takeaway from me and not understand the value of it and how it impacts people. And so we are we have the scarcity mentality when it comes to giving people recognition that I just patently don't understand. We should be I what I found is and I think I wrote this in the book is that you know unless you take this to sacrinix you know you know to to lengths that we can't even imagine you can't over appreciate people. But what we tend to do is to underappreciate it and rationalize it by going, well, Scott knows I appreciate him. I don't need to tell him all the time. Well, you do. You really do. And, and appreciation is a positive emotion. And we know that all emotions are short-lived. So I may say, Scott, you're really excellent at this podcast. And I say that right now. And that gives you a really great feeling. But if I never say it again, that feeling goes away. And you need to refresh it. And, and it just makes people feel good. And it makes people feel like they're online. Like Mark wouldn't say that to me if he didn't think I was a good interviewer and a good podcast host. So that makes me feel good. I like Mark. I'm happy to hear him say that from me. But it also means I'm not going to change. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because this is working. And so there's all this positive value. But the alternative is how people feel when they're not appreciated. And if you don't appreciate people and that well runs dry, then people become, you know, like if you starve an animal and you've seen a starved animal, that's how people behave. They they start to resent you and they get angry and it comes out in their work and their behavior because it's like nothing I do here matters. No one ever appreciates me. And then they shut down. Why the hell should I work hard for, for him or her if I'm not getting what I need? And so it's a human need to be appreciated, appreciated, and we should be very generous with it. Wow. Uh, that is a powerful set of uh, practices there, Mark. And just to, to recap, uh, hire the right people, right? Uh, look at the people you're hiring and how they fit. Um, make sure you're connecting with people on a personal level uh, and making them feel like they're recognized. Give people the, uh, the 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 power to maximize their potential, allow them to grow, and finally inspire people with acknowledging their achievements and valuing them 
on a regular basis, a recurring investment, as it were, rather than just tipping them from time to time. Powerful stuff. So as we wrap up here, Mark, if someone who appreciates this kind of work, appreciates your writing, if they want to get started leading from the heart, what's the one single thing you can tell them to start with? Um, well, we, we, we really did just talk about the most important one. So I, I would say that if all of this is entirely foreign to you, which is unlikely, but assuming that it is, right, start with just appreciating people and like make it a, like like more than you would think would be necessary. Hey, Larry, thank you for that. You know, just go out of your way to appreciate people. Um, I want to thank everyone before we get started. Thanks, everyone, for being here on time. A manager listening to this going, that's complete bullshit. They're expected to be there on time. Why should I have to thank them for being on time? You know why? Because not everybody is on time. So when they are, you should acknowledge it because you're reinforcing the behavior that you absolutely wanted in the first place. You get more of what you appreciate. So I would say start there. But the big picture is show people you care because that's what affects the heart. And how you make people feel is so profoundly more important than how people think about you. So when you ask somebody, what do you think of Mark Crowley? What they're not doing is accessing their mind. They're accessing, how does Mark Crowley make me feel? And then that information goes up to the mind and the mind goes, guy doesn't care about me. He's never there for me. So I think he's a jerk. Or Mark Crowley is somebody who deeply cares about me, cares about me personally, knows what's going on in my life, has demonstrated to me over and over and over that this is someone who really has my back. I feel safe with him. I love working for him. He's great. That he's great started with the feeling and then the mind interprets the signals that the heart is giving. So make people feel something really powerful just by demonstrating that you care about them. So, so powerful. Well, Mark, thank you so, so much for being part of this discussion. Uh, Mark Crowley, of course, the author of Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century, now in its second edition. And uh, I have to say, Mark, you are not only a man who was ahead of his time, but you are a man for our times. So thank you. Well, thank you so very much for saying that, Scott. I really appreciate that very, very much. As we were talking earlier, it, we're coming up on to the launch of the book, and I'm, you know, I'm humanly anxious about it. Hopefully, it's all going to do well, and I just appreciate you saying that very, very much. When we take the time to connect with people on a personal level, we show them that we care. If we've hired the right people, odds are they'll care as well. And together, we can achieve more by leading from the heart. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you, our leader.